0: You're listening to the Faith and Other Oddities podcast, brought to you by the Raven Creek Social Club, where we talk about faith and other oddities. For questions, comments, or to be part of the conversation, join us on Facebook,
1: Twitter, and Instagram, where you can find us at Raven Creek SC. Now for your hosts, Emily Dixon and Nathan Underwood. Hey, everyone, welcome back to Faith and Other Oddities, where we. Uh Read the Bible and talk about it.
0: <laughs> A lot of different things discussed on this show. <laughs> yeah.
1: So uh, last week we were in Psalms of the
0: Psalms Psalm, two. Psalm two, yeah, so. yeah. And we're we're finishing that out this week because we we kind of ran out of time last time, and so we want to go ahead and finish up Psalm two, and we want to get back into Second Samuel, yep. but we want to show how. This psalm was connected to the idea of the coronation of kings, specifically with King David being the ideal king and the one who presented the nation with what a, a king should look like lo- yeah, should look like, but also to point us forward with expectations for the Messiah. Mm-hmm. And that that expectation of the Messiah was something that was very near and dear to the, the Jews at this time. And I think sometimes we forget that Israel was looking for a Messiah in the same way that we hope to see the Messiah. That mm-hmm. this is not a um, this is not a hope or a desire that's limited to the Christian faith. That each religion, the ultimate aim is to see God's rule manifest in this person we call well, we as Christians call Jesus, but the Jews. We're really expecting the first advent of the Messiah to be this this kingdom like David. Now we're, mm-hmm. we believe that it's going to happen in the second coming, and we're going to get to see all of these prophecies fulfilled at a later date. And this is the reason why they missed who Jesus was, was because they were looking for a king to rule over the nations like David did. So we've ended the last time we were talking about that concept of being born again and how that's not... Um, unique to christianity it was very present in judaism and how that verse there in psalm 2 today i have begotten you does not refer to jesus it refers to to david and him being reborn as god's son when he took the crown when he was coronated as a king now as we move forward in verse 8 it says ask of me and i will make nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession so Number one, as a son of the king, he had the right to ask for anything and to to ask specifically for nations. And David believed this. I mean, we've already seen this back when he uh, went to Achish, the Philistine king. He actually went to that king and said, hey, give me a city. And now he's saying God is has enlarged this. It's not just a city that like a Philistine king or, you know, God representative of the God could give him. God could actually give him the ends of the earth as a possession, and we know that this is something that's going to happen with Christ. We see this reflected in the book of Acts, where we start to see that reversal of Deuteronomy 32, 8, and 9, where the nations were allotted to the sons of God, and they were appointed by their number. So now we have this time where David's saying, God's going to reverse this, and it is going to come through the means of kingship and God's rule over all the nation through his anointed king, through the Messiah. And now, Rashi reads this as an admonition that, that David should pray before going into battle, which, of course, we did see him do in 2 Samuel, that before he faced the Philistines, he asked God, should I go up against the Philistines? Sure. So you can kind of see where Rashi gets it. And um, this uh, this idea is very much a part of the Jewish kingship, that the king should be submissive to God. And it, the, the reminder that the purpose of the kingdom is to— ex- or the purpose of God's rule through this king is to specifically— extend the kingdom in the manner in which God has decreed and anointed or appointed for the king. So verse nine, you shall break them with iron, with an iron rod and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. So the rule is going to be complete and overthrows, uh, the overthrowing of these foreign dignitaries and Kings and other nation is going to be devastating because removing corrupt leadership is always brutal. So, verse 10, now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, the rulers of the earth. So, notice the first, O kings, this is plural. He's talking to the kings of the other nation. This is not directed to the king of Israel. And then, we're, this is confirmed in the second line, O rulers of the earth. Verse 11, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. And so, these verses are seen as a proclamation of mercy that. If you pay attention to the warnings if you understand that God is the only true king then you can survive if you practice wisdom and if you serve the Lord. So art scroll actually translates verse 11 with serve the Lord with awe not with trembling and
1: it's well in this in the JPS it says rejoice with trembling.
0: Rejoice with trembling? Yeah, yes. that's well that's ESV. Yeah, ESV, rejoice. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, that seems so weird because... Very strange. Yeah. But how do you subject yourself to God? By by honoring the anointed king and understanding that God's authority and God's holiness should be awe-inspiring. It should make you tremble. And that's the appropriate response to a holy God. It is that trembling but you you rejoice because you recognize the only reason why you're in his presence is because you've sought his presence and now because you have sought his presence through the study and application of torah now you can rejoice because you're going to be saved that's what the promise of psalm one was and when we know that psalm two is built on psalm one now we we recognize that we need mercy and mercy can not be claimed when you stand in humility before him. And I think sometimes we, we forget that the two things have to go hand in hand. We, we need that sense and that understanding of how great our God is. And I think that's one of the things we, we've done a great disservice to God in how we've presented him in modern culture, that he's our best friend. He's our boyfriend. He's, you know, he, he's somehow tame. He's somehow safe and god is not safe god is never safe and we're going to see a huge um example of that as we move forward in second samuel because we're going to be talking about transporting the ark of the covenant and the ark of the lord and how dangerous that is now because god isn't safe god is merciful and he teaches us how to be around him safely sure and so I, i i sometimes think that uh And this is a bad example, and I'm going to acknowledge that up front, but I think part of growing up as a farm kid and being around these animals that were so huge Mm -hmm. and massive and we understand what it is to have your life endangered uh, Mm -hmm. by something that you cannot control. And so you learn how to deal with them safely. And that's,
1: that's a good, I think that's a good example. Well, I just don't want to equate
0: God with like a bull, you know, (laughs) he's so much more than that. So, but it's that fine line of how do you contextualize this stuff without being disrespectful? And how do you say these these massive truths without making them trite. Right. Uh, I think that's always going to be a battle. Um, But speaking of battles, verse 12. And so in the ESV, it reads, kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So I see you've got your JPS version out there. I should get back to the mic, I suppose. Uh, This one says, "Pay homage in good faith." Okay. Uh, Another translation is "seek purity." Now, um, as a matter of fact, the art scroll says, "Yearn for purity, lest he grow wrathful in your way; be doomed in a brief moment. His anger will kindle. uh, His anger will blaze. Praises for all who trust him." So. Even if you go to like Bible Hub, which I use Bible Hub a lot when I'm looking at a single verse because it'll give you just a list of all the English translations or a lot of the English translations, and you're going to see that they can vary wildly. Uh, There's a lot of (laughs) debate. And it all comes down to how we translate one little word here, and the word is bar, bar. Now the ESV has chosen to translate it as sun, so the word be- so the verse reads "kiss the sun." However, it can also be translated as pure, as reflected by that art scroll uh, translation I just read and your, the JPS. So this argument, let's talk about it because there is legitimate basis for translating it both ways. So bar. In Aramaic is son. Sure. Ben is the word for son in Hebrew. Okay. We already know that the psalm is written in Hebrew. That's undisputed. In verse 7, previous to this, we already had the word for Ben, the Hebrew word for, for son. We already had that present. So it seems really weird that we would switch from Hebrew to Aramaic within the same psalm and totally change how it's, uh, how it's read. And this poses some huge problems because there's accusations uh, that are being made on both sides of the fence. So, okay. <sighs> One of the arguments for, we're getting to what those accusations are in just a second, but one of the arguments for translating this as the Aramaic bar is that the idea that this command is being given to Gentile kings and nations, so therefore you would use Aramaic to to communicate with nations that spoke primarily Aramaic. If this is the case, why do we just translate one word? yeah you know why isn't the whole um,
1: yeah i'm not tracking with that one
0: uh, yeah and it i'm with you that does not make sense to me now jerome who was around 400 a.d or ce depending on how you wanted to note that he notes in his translation that it could mean son but he chooses not to translate this word as son he actually goes with the hebrew meaning of the word which is purity and. We don't know how far back that it was accepted to to translate this as purity rather than sun, but we do know that it really wasn't solidified as the standard translation as "Kiss the Sun" until sometime around the sixteenth century. so scholars have plunged deep into biblical nerdom in attempt to figure out the correct translation. The problem is the grammar isn't really good and it's not entirely proper, no matter which translation we, we go with. And there's problems with every proposed solution. Now, I tend to lean towards the side that there is a corruption in the text. Okay. Somewhere along the line, somebody had a typo. And we probably lost the original meaning somewhere way back in the pages of history. And I'm okay with that. When we look at outside sources to try to help us, like the Dead Sea Scrolls, that we find very little help. The Dead Sea Scrolls, as far as I could find on all of my searches, they cut off at verse eight, so you don't have this verse included, okay, so that's kind of irritating, and the problems that we get is our Jewish apologists translate the word "bar" because um. It does have the legitimate Hebrew meaning of pure, and they say that Christians have corrupted the text by trying to cause this to reflect a Christian message sure. Now, Christians accuse Jewish translators of trying to obscure the messianic language of the psalm. so this has you know led to some arguments and wrangling, and it, the the problem is if we just focus on this one word then it's really easy to neglect the totality of the message or the total to- totality of the psalm yeah and the when we consider the whole psalm both christian and jewish commentators agree that this is a messianic psalm and the question really is is it Limited to the earthly Messiah David that everybody knew at this time, mm-hmm. or does it encompass a future concept of of a Messiah? Right, and and I don't see the arguments. Either argument and the solution to those arguments is being mutually exclusive. I think we've seen within the psalm, if you go back to the last episode, there is this duality where you're looking back and you're looking forward, you're looking at earth, you're looking at heaven. Mm-hmm. And the psalmist has presented these these ideas in a very cohesive, intertwined way that should not be ignored. And so for this reason, I think the the kiss the sun Translation is actually far more suspect. And I think it is actually a case of Christian interpreters and translators trying to push a New Testament agenda on an Old Testament document. Right, right. And I think that we need to, uh, I, I think we need to acknowledge that this happens. I mean,
1: well, it, I, it definitely happens. I mean, and if we lose this one verse, we haven't lost anything really that's that makes a solid case for jesus being the messiah so that's number one but i also think uh you want to make clear that whenever you're talking about um how you think these you know you're we're reading the new testament onto the old testament in in an illegitimate way i just want to make sure that we're saying you know we're not saying the new testament is invalid we're just saying you know make sure you're treating the old testament correctly (laughs)
0: Yeah, you know, one of the, the problems with arguing for a side or a cause is, at least for me, and I, I think this is true of others, is it's very easy to get caught up into overstatement and grabbing onto anything that mm-hmm, proves mm-hmm. Your, uh, your stance. And we've already seen how Christians have tried to take this verse, uh, take this psalm, and impose even greater meaning on it than what was there. We saw that back in verse seven, you know, where, where God says, today I have begotten you. And they want to try to apply that to Jesus, which doesn't work out theologically at all. Right. And so we know that this is a psalm that, that Christians have attempted to make say more than what's there. And the problem is, when we start doing that, we start losing the message of what God did present to us, and we aren't respecting what God has decided to present to us.
1: Right. And, and, and then anyone who knows the other side of it, then you've just made everything else you say more
0: suspect. Exactly. So, you know, if I had a say in the translation committee, I'm like, give, a, you know, give in just just go with the hebrew reading because the rest of the psalm is read is written in hebrew mm-hmm, mm-hmm. be consistent stop trying to make things say what you want them to say and stop destroying our credibility by doing something like this so i would go with the the, the purity uh aspect plus there's another aspect in this because we, we need to remember this particular psalm is supposed to be read in context or in concert with Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 is presenting this idea that peace, success, and happiness is the result of devoting one's attention and will to the, the study and application of Torah. And the application, study and application of Torah teaches us that we need to be pure. And this is how you're pure, and it, it's by following the Torah, the Torah. And so when you put that into play and read, and read this verse with the idea of yearning for purity as mm-hmm. being one of the, the admirable and you know, the celebrated traits of the Messiah or for anybody else, then it, it fits because it's, it's yearning for purity that helps you avoid the wrath of God. And it's reading and studying Torah that teaches you how to be pure. And so we find refuge in the Lord whenever we are doing what's pleasing to Him, and we experience personal blessing. And so it all just circles back, and we already know that we're supposed to circle back. Mm-hmm. And this just adds to that that process. And so just... You know, I, being respectful of the text, that, that's the, the big thing for mm-hmm. me, is mm-hmm. we need to be respectful of the text. And I think when we, we fail to do that, we, we miss out because we forget that God has a specific message he's trying to, to teach us. And that specific message is, hey, you need to know what I want so you can do it. And I've been very clear in what I want. And this isn't something that I'm saying your salvation uh, rests on. Uh, Salvation is grace and faith, and it's not by works, lest any man should boast. But when you enter into that relationship with God, if it's a real relationship, then you want to honor that relationship. And part of the way you do that is by getting to know him. And how do you get to know him? By reading the things that he has preserved for us to learn about him. So that wraps up Psalms two. <laughs> and yeah. Well, and, and
1: I do want to say, yeah, and especially like you're talking about, you know, being honest with the text, especially, especially if you already get there where you want to go through other text, there's no reason to pile on something else.
0: It, right. Right. I, it, how, how flimsy is our argument? If this is what we have to do is to do something that's kind of questionable, honestly. Yeah. And so, yeah. yeah and, and then, you know, that you you completely
1: just undermine all of Origins' work. Oh, right. (laughs) Or not all of it, but a large portion of it. The split took a while to (laughs) compile. It's, (laughs) yeah. Go look that up. That'll kind of blow your mind, because he did that without a computer or a printing press or anything.
0: I have that it's a mind-blowing undertaking when you, uh, oh, I sounded oaky there, undertaking. <laughs> so, but okay, uh, we're back in Second Samuel now. We're on chapter six. And I just want to say this is a story that has fascinated me since I was a kid. I have probably read this story so many times trying to understand it and i always refer to it as the story of uza because uza is a he's the central character from the sense he's the one that uh things happen to so um If you don't know the story, real quick overview, David has remembered the Ark, and he's going to bring it into Jerusalem, and Uzzah's the one who tries to keep the Ark from falling out of the back of the cart that they're transporting the Ark on, and God kills him. And that's what bugged me, because I'm like, he was just trying to help. Yeah. Why did God kill him? Why is God being so mean? You shouldn't be mean to people who are trying to help. And let me just say that shows my, my maturity level <laughs> and it showed my lack of understanding because going back and revisiting the story as someone who's older, I find that it actually makes way more sense than I would have ever been able to understand as a kid or a teenager. So uh, this story, it is told in both Samuel and in Chronicles, and we're going to be spending a lot of time referring to the Chronicle account because the author of Chronicles tells a much fuller story. Okay. Uh, the writer of Samuel tells the story in less than two dozen verses, literally 23 verses, you have the whole story. The writer of Chronicles gives us 76 verses, so almost three times the, the number of verses for the same event. But again, two books written for two different audiences in two different times and you know we got to remember hundreds of years have passed between the authorship of both these books they were not written at the same time so if samuel was composed at least in part as a lot of scholars think by nathan and gad then the events were were current and the people knew what was going on so they didn't need a lot of explanation mm-hmm. Now, the audience in Chronicles, they're getting this book after the destruction of the temple, and they have never encountered the Ark. The Ark had been carried away before most of them were even born. And so he's writing for an audience that needs to remember that the splendor and the glory and the majesty of God as he was manifest through their nation. And the Chronicler goes through, through great pains to illustrate that one fact we were a nation we had a governing body we had a religious structure we had forms and systems in place that you need to make a nation work mm-hmm. and all of these things that that give people a right to call themselves an actual nation but more than this he he's trying to remind them that this national identity was something they could be proud of and could be reclaimed even in the midst of exile samuel's audience they don't need that They just need to be told why the exile is necessary Mm -hmm. and and why it was almost unavoidable by the time it happens because of what the Torah says. Right. So first one, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. So we get this simple, direct description. David gets 30,000 men together. First Chronicles 13, verses 1 and 2, gives us this whole list of people that David consults with, commanders of thousands and hundreds, every leader. And they tell David, you know, if it's good to you and it's the will of the Lord, then then you need to do it. And they say, let us send abroad our brethren you know, to all of those who remain in Israel. Well, when you say, hey, let's send abroad for everyone who remains, th- this is saying, hey, we can do the same thing in our exile we can send abroad for everyone who remains so that this language is trying to build in chronicles anyway is trying to build this expectation of if it happened once it can happen again Mm -hmm. and so uh, they they send out according to chronicles uh people together priests levites that are in cities and in pasture lands and so you have this expansive list of people, but you also have geography because in first chronicles thirteen five it's they're supposed to go from Shahor of Egypt to the interests of Hamath now this is the most expansive description of the land of Israel we find in all of the Bible and it's really driving home that point Israel was a great nation you know mm-hmm. normally when we're told about Israel it's from from Dan to Bashir, yeah Bashir and then all of a sudden the writer of Chronicles to say no, it was even bigger than that. And you want to be a part of this great heritage. And he's pulling out all the stops to remind the people that you, this greatness was the result of honoring God, specifically in the building of the temple. And the first step towards building the temple is getting the ark back home. Mm-hmm. And you've got to remember, too, that when the people return from exile, building the temple is the first project, the first national project that they embark on. So with Samuel, one and done, Chronicles, this great big list, and the, this expansive description of the geography. But you shouldn't let the shortness of Samuel's first Obscure the fact that you have a theological message even there. And it's in this one key bit of information. He gathered 30,000. This is the first clue that we're supposed to be connecting this story right back to 1 Samuel 4. Because it was 30,000 Israelites who were killed the day that the the ark was captured. Got you. Okay. Yeah. And it's it's fitting that we go back and incorporate that story into this retelling because this was the last time that the Ark was center stage, was in, when the Philistines captured mm-hmm. the Ark. So we we're gonna have a lot of crossover between Samuel and Chronicles and then 2nd Samuel and 1st Samuel. So um and it's probably, honestly, if you want to kind of boil down why in the world I didn't understand the story here in Second Samuel, is because I did not know it should be connected back to First Samuel. And it's only when you put the two together that it begins to make a lot of sense. So verse 2. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baal Yehuda or Judah to bring up from there the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. This is the only time that the Ark is referred to this way, but it's in keeping with the writing of Samuel because God's identity is the God who leads the army. He's the God of hosts, the Lord of hosts. Right. Now, Ba Baal Jehuda, Judah is a new name for Samuel. We've never heard this name before, but the writer of Chronicles does clarify for us that, that this is Kirith uh, Jerim. This is where the Ark was left yeah. the last time we saw it in Samuel. So there is kind of a weird little thing there that I don't have a great explanation for that why would the writer of Samuel change names from this town unless it was written by multiple people or uh, there was an editor at work. Now, the, the writer of Chronicles does include a unique name for the Ark, and again, the, this is the only time you find this title, is whenever the writer of Chronicles references events, he says the Ark of our Lord. So he, he's reminding the people, our God, sorry, the Ark of our God, the only time we find the uh, Ark referred to with any kind of possessive sense for the nation of Israel, so it's fitting that it's in Chronicles. Verse 3, and they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house. That's
1: interesting, because my ch- my ESV does not say the ark of our Lord. Oh, really? No.
0: Well, that's, oh, is that Chronicles or Samuel? Samuel. Uh, that's in Chronicles. Oh, so it's Chronicles. Okay. Yeah. I was like, whoa, that's we're, way different. We're juggling okay. books. <laughs> so I know, I'm trying to keep up over here. I, I know, it, it's, it's crazy. You should see the system in place uh, at my house when I'm writing all this out. So. um yeah okay so verse three and they carried the ark of god on a new cart and brought it out of the house of abinadab which was on a hill and Uzzah and ahio the sons of abinadab were driving a new cart with the ark of god and ahio went before the ark so this is where the ark has been since samuel was a boy to kind of give a little bit of context the the ark was never even in a place of central worship while samuel was alive this is how long ago it was been and when it was left at Abinadab's house it was his son Eleazar, who was consecrated to care for the ark but this name is not mentioned at all in the in samuel or chronicles so we don't know who these two new sons are they're they're new on the scene okay and um we do know that these guys don't have any reason to plead ignorance on how to treat the ark because not only have they lived with the ark in their house evidently since they were kids because they weren't even mentioned whenever the ark is dropped off but they were also levites and so we're being set up here and we should Already be cringing a bit because we know that you don't transport the ark on a cart. This is the wrong way. The ark is supposed to be carried by the priest. And we should be cringing because this is the way the Philistines transported mm-hmm. the ark, not Israel. So if Israel and King David don't understand how to serve and honor God better than the Philistines, what condition is the nation in? Right. And you know, and if David, who's supposed to be better than Saul, can only do as well as the, the Philistines did, then we're in trouble. Mm-hmm. And we're in trouble because of the one thing that First Samuel 4 teaches us, the ark is dangerous. That's why it was at Abinadab's house to begin with, because God had killed a bunch of Israelites for daring to look on the The ark, Mm -hmm. not even to touch it, just Mm -hmm. to look at it. And so when Israel misses. People tend to get killed whenever this thing's
1: around. Can we store this at your house? Yeah. You met. Conversation must have been
0: interesting. (laughs) I'm having this flashback of a friend who asked if he could leave a bunch of uh, knives at my house one time. I'm like, no, no, you take those with you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know what you've been doing or what could be done. So yeah. Uh, But that's. That's the thing. the The ark was where it was because it had been proven to be dangerous, and it was dangerous only after it had been handled in this exact same manner. And so, as a reader, you should pause and go, "What in the world is David thinking?" Because, notice. He didn't talk to God. He didn't inquire of the Lord before he does this. He just goes out and says, hey, we're going to go get the ark. It's like a Sunday afternoon drive. Hey, this is great. Um, But even more, he doesn't inquire of God. He consults with his military advisors on a religious matter. Hmm. Okay.
1: (laughs) Man. (laughs) Oh, we could go some places with that idea.
0: <laughs> this, is, this is not a good thing. We don't talk to the military to teach us about religious manners, And, and, and it matters. Now, the, the thing is, it makes sense from the perspective. I, I used to have a bunch of army guys that hung out at my house, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I love them. And one of the things I really loved, them, I loved about them, they know how to get things done. They can tell you what the most effective, efficient manner to get things done is. They don't spend a lot of time, you know, haggling over nuances. This is, let's dive in let's and done. take care yeah. of it. So for military advisors, how do you move something big and heavy? You, you put, put it, it on, on a, a cart. cart. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, So you can kind of see that this makes sense, but then, you know, why didn't David inquire of the Lord? You know, is this some kind of hubris setting in or is it just nonchalance that he thinks that he's, you know, I can handle holy and sacred things. I mean,
1: or maybe his thought is, well, of course God wants us to get the cart. Why should we
0: even ask Him? Exactly. Well, and you know, when when David had gone into the temple before it, no, he'd eaten the showbread, and God seemed to be okay with that. Yeah, that's so, also true. You know, he doesn't seem to to have any real reason to worry about. He's got
1: a track record of not getting struck dead for things like that.
0: Yeah, he he really <laughs> does, and which shows you how much God loves him. But uh, you know, the the rabbis came up with an interesting solution, like they tend to do, and they said that David thought that the command to carry the ark on the poles by the Levites only applied in the wilderness journey, and now that they were in Israel, then it was okay to move it with a cart. So this is the reason why he made this mistake. I never saw the sunset clause in there. I didn't either, but you know... it. The Rabbis, you know they came up with, with, with some great great ideas. Um, but while we're questioning David, we might also want to question what's his motive? Is this a politically savvy move that you know, let's establish this place of worship? You know, I'm God's anointed, and if I put in the ultimate symbol of God's presence in my capital city now you have to appreciate my position within God's kingdom and all of Israel should unite behind me and we can do away with any doubts and misgivings or is it real devotion and honor to God I, these these are questions that with David you you have to ask but I don't think there's ever really going to be a good answer uh, Walter Brueggemann, who, uh, again, you always have to say you love Walter Brueggemann because mm-hmm. he's just great. He suggests that David manages to hold on to both factors with personal authenticity, which resists choosing one over the other. So he's saying, you know, David could actually have both things going on at play and be completely sincere about both motives. It, it Yeah. And I mean... And I can see that because sometimes doing the right thing is also the advantageous thing. And you would like to think you're just doing it because it's the right thing. But, you know, we're human and we still see.
1: Yeah. I mean, if the right thing, if doing the right thing helps, you know, bonus, right?
0: Exactly. Well, and, and I see this in, in, in David's statement because in, in 1 Chronicles thirteen three, David says, for we neglected it in the days of Saul. So David gives us, you know, this little critique of Saul. But he also is implying that he can do better, and there's a desire to do better than Saul did. Mm -hmm. And so this is, it, it makes sense that he could look at, if I'm going to be a good king, then I do have to do better than Saul. And doing better than Saul means that I honor the things of God in a way that Saul didn't. Right, right. So Now, the writer of Samuel has already connected us tightly back to 1 Samuel 4, and we're left to wonder if David is going to get away with making the same mistake that Finchas and Hophni did when they used the ark as a good luck charm. Mm -hmm. And so this is going to be what we're going through and trying to sort out. So verse 5, David and all of the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs, lyres, and harps, and tambourines, and castanets, and cymbals. Celebrating is a good translation here. The ESV translators did a good job, um, because it carries with it the idea of merrymaking, kind mm-hmm. of something frivolous. This is not rejoice; they are not rejoicing before the ark at this point. Right? They they're they're partying is what they're doing. Oh, I
1: see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. As opposed, yeah.
0: Yeah. I got you. And you know they're not they're not honoring the magnitude of this event. Yeah. At this point. Yeah. So. This verse and in first chronicles three thirteen eight they're very similar, uh, but there is one big difference. The verse in first Samuel literally reads "firwood uh instead of songs uh If you look at the Hebrew there, which is it's like weird, you know, they were celebrating with firwood and lyres and har- so kind of odd. I mean that's what I want at my party. <laughs> <Fir wood. laughs> nothing makes it a party like some fur would. <laughs> <laughs> and so, um, and this is why a lot of translators like the ESV writers did here, translators did here, they correct it by using First Chronicles as a reference point. Sure. Okay. Because First Chronicles does say songs. And the thing is, the words are like one letter difference between songs and fur.
1: Okay. And, what, what, well, I mean, there's that with fur uh,
0: would fur would be used in any kind of incense making uh, it possibly might um but we don't have any kind of anything else and it seems weird that you've got this whole list of instruments and no reference to anything you know like incense with it okay. so you've got you know song cymbals tambourines castanets and i mean all of these instruments the canor is listed um but I I honestly think, based on, like I said, there's one letter difference, and the two letters are really, really similar. Mm -hmm. And you actually have to add the word "wood" to Samuel to make it "fur wood." So that it would okay. It would just be "fur," so they, you know, (laughs) as in the type of tree. Yeah. And all right. Well, okay. Yeah. I think I
1: think I've wasted too much of your time on that. Sorry, I was just curious.
0: Well, what's interesting is it shows how translators and scribes used other parts of the bible to make sure that the corrections were correct Mm -hmm. and so they relied really on first chronicles to to be able to uh to to make this the right the right reading uh so what could have happened and there's two scenarios that could have happened and i like to play out the scenarios because I think we sometimes forget that translating the Bible is a very human endeavor. Mm -hmm. Uh, Copying the Bible is a very human endeavor. So what's possible is that the person who wrote um, Chronicles or wrote Samuel did not have a copy of Chronicles to refer back to, to make the correction. And so they, they... you mean the, the did you say translated? Oh, well, translated. But this is probably a scribe. Sorry, a scribe who was just copying. copying. Okay. Yeah, he was just copying the Book of Samuel. Uh, he probably came across this where it said fur, and he didn't have a copy of Chronicles to look at and go, okay, what did they say? Sure. Okay. And he's like, well, it couldn't just be fur, so it needs to be fur wood, and probably thinking instruments made of fur wood, which is one translation. Sometimes you will find that okay. it's instruments made of fur wood. Um, so you know, he added that other word because he didn't have that um that copy of Chronicles to help him with the correction, or alternatively, a writer of Chronicles was reading 2 Samuel, realized that there's a typo here, and said, mm-hmm, Well, we're mm-hmm. gonna write the right word when we write Chronicles. Okay. And so um they took it back to song. So this is technically an error in the script. That that's just all there is to it. The the Hebrew meaning uh, the Hebrew word there is wrong in Second, Samu- in Second Samuel. It- okay. And so now nobody get their knickers in the knot because the meaning of the verse is unaffected. Mm-hmm. They, they, there was a lot of people, they were partying with everything they had access to. And so they want to have a good time and celebrate the fact that David is bringing the ark back into, or back, not back, but into, into Jerusalem. Jerusalem. So uh, the next verse says, When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. So we have two different names for the threshing floor. Samuel calls it the uh, the uh, threshing floor of Nacon. In Chronicles, it's Kidron and each name only appears in these verses. Of course. Yeah. (laughs) So we... (laughs)
1: There's no good way to reference around
0: it. Yeah. Well, and you know, the point is, it doesn't matter whose threshing floor it is. The point is, the oxen stumbled, Yusuf put his hand out. And, you know, if you're reading this without context... Well, I mean, it could have
1: been that the Name of the floor had changed by the time Chronicles was written. Exactly. So
0: yeah. So we're going to refer to it, simple. Yeah, going to refer to it by the name people know. Oh, wait a minute. Also, there's the fact that people in the Bible have more than one name. Uh, so you know, mm-hmm. all of this stuff comes into play. But the point is that the part that matters is intact in both verses, and that's the oxen tripped use a reacts he puts his and he puts his hand out and you know this seems like a perfect le- perfectly legitimate response when you see something valuable start to fall mm-hmm. what do you do you, know? you
1: you try to stop it okay so i actually um <laughs> it's a little bit of personal you actually have to i mean you have to train that reflex out of yourself yes you do uh, i mean it, in certain instances i was not working with anything nearly so holy um, but I used to work for the <laughs> liquor distributor <laughs> and one of the things, one of the things they tell you is if you, if a bottle starts to fall, don't try to like catch it with your foot or your hand, just back up. Just, I mean, yeah. cause if, if it breaks on you, it's going to hurt you. Right. And so seriously, that's, that's a hard impulse not to, uh.
0: It really is not to go for because you have to bring in that conscious thought before the instinct takes over. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that's not an easy thing. But in Yuse's case, this has been something that's been housed at his father's home, and he's a Levite. And so, even though it's been a part of his life, he still hasn't learned the proper way. He hasn't bothered to train that impulse out of himself right. regarding this. He probably didn't work for the liquor. you probably not. <laughs> Well, yeah. okay, I'm not going to... I know. I know. <laughs> yeah. Drive so, that joke into the ground uh, real quick. Yeah, well, we can do that. We like to get our money's worth out of the jokes. <laughs> but verse 7, um, And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. So the the chronicler tells us specifically that the the error the error is that Uzzah put his hand out. Out to the ark and so we read this though and we get like well this is a really disproportionate response by god right and if we don't have that full picture it's easy to think that god's just being horrible and as i've mentioned like three times already he's a he's a levite and he would have known the proper way to refer to the Ark. At Mm -hmm. this point, this information is available. We've talked about how maybe parts of the Torah or all of the Torah weren't available to the people during this time. But this part was. This part was, because David's going to access this information later on. Mm -hmm. So this is not lost. Uh, One of the primary duties of a Levite is to make sure that the Ark is treated with the proper dignity and respect that it it deserves mm-hmm. and instead of upholding his duty to god he's bowed to the dictates and desires of a king and it really drives home the point in israel you cannot confuse the king with god right they are two distinct beings and yes they operate together but the king is always subservient to the god mm. and now um Yuza as a Levite, actually had an obligation to speak up and correct David in his error, and because Yuza did not correct David, David's error, David's error became Uzzah's error. So the, this this idea that when you know more, you're supposed to do better. Yeah, a- and yeah. he had an obligation. Okay. And by joining, you know, by joining in this and and becoming a participant with David's error, he's actually inviting others to join and, and be a part of it. And because he's a leader. Right. And so he's giving his tacit approval of what David's doing by allowing it to happen. And the fact that he is at the head of the parade, this is seen as outright, absolutely we should just follow along because if our king and our spiritual leaders are doing it, it's got to be the right, right thing, right. That's not how this works. <laughs> so um, in reaching out to the ark, he is doing a few things here. he He's demonstrating a lack of faith. He's demonstrating a lack of understanding about the nature of the ark, But he could also be showing um some. A sense of pride, be, and which kind of is strengthened by the fact that he is so close to the ark.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, if we go back and only look at some basic beliefs about the ark, we find out that the ark was believed that it was believed that the ark was not carried by the Levites. We believe that, or we believe that the they. There's, there's a tradition that states. Thank you. Yeah, the ark carried the Levites instead. So that if you carried the ark, you were actually being carried by the ark. And so, you know, this isn't just a gold box with some putti on top. This is a gold box where we should explain oh, what putti are. Yeah, that's
1: not really in the common vernacular. <laughs> okay. The little angel-looking guys in Italian art; those are called putto, or the, plural putti. The
0: the the baby angels, the little baby, the, the cutesy little, yeah. yeah.
1: That's not what a cherub looks like.
0: No cherubs are scary. Allegedly, uh, yeah. I haven't actually seen one myself, but. Um...
1: So yeah, I just I wanted to, <laughs> right? Like in case no one knew what putti was. That's
0: not well, really you don't really hear that.
1: in... <laughs> in conjunction with the Ark of the Covenant,
0: well, because often in modern culture when we talk about cherubs, we people think of those cute little babies, and, right. you, no, know, and I, you know, I yeah. followed you. No, I know you did. But and that, that's the thing when when the Ark of the Covenant is it, described as it has cherubim on top, mm-hmm. these are terrifying guardian. Attack angels of God that He's enthroned on. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think we we need to remember this isn't just a symbol of God's presence with Israel. God's manifest presence, the Shekinah glory. This is where it was seen. Yeah. And this isn't some kind of abstract. Oh, look, we we worship a God who's enthroned above the cherub. Just squint real hard and believe, and you might be able to catch a glimmer. This would be an overwhelming thing that happened among the people. Yeah, and that was
1: before the invention of glasses, so some people wouldn't even have to squint, squint,
0: right? (laughs) You know, but there, I, I think we kind of. Because we don't see manifestations of God like this, there there's this tendency to forget how awe-inspiring this might have been and, and what it must have been like to, you know, the the, the ark led the way through the through the wilderness mm-hmm. and you know, a cloud of uh of a cloud by day and fire by night, and that was above the ark to demonstrate this is where God is and this is where he's taking us. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so we shouldn't think that this is something you're going to find at Hobby Lobby and put on your mantelpiece. This is this is more than that, and I I think we're just too casual about the presence of God sometimes. But the idea that God might fall, and that would be represented in the ark falling, it's mm-hmm. offensive. Yeah, and we should understand that it's offensive. God doesn't need humanity to save him. And that's what Uzzah was in effect doing. God needs humanity to save him, and you know the the writer of both Chronicles and Samuel want you to remember what the significance and the purpose of this box is. I mean, they they went out of their way to include Second uh, Samuel six two, the Lord of Hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. First Chronicles thirteen six, the Lord of Hosts who sits throned, enthroned above the cherubim, and so. For anyone to think that this ark needed to be defended by a human being is a lack of faith at the very least, but it's arrogance at, the, at its worst. And you know, we don't know what Uzzah's intent or his motives were. We can kind of guess maybe a little bit. Um, but God couldn't allow this act to go unnoticed or without some kind of strong response. And so we, we do get the strong response because without it, it could really have a devastating impact on the theology of Israel. And, you know, when you, you have this story, the, the, the theology is strengthened and validated that God is holy. And matter of fact, this story is, is so impactive that the the rabbis actually embellished it just a little more to to catch your attention they said that when Uzzah fell down dead that the ark actually hovered in midair for a while and returned to the uh, to the cart on its own because God didn't want anyone to mistake the the even Uzzah's touch as being helpful the ark did not need it and You know, we can't deny how much of an impact the story has because anybody who's watched Indiana Jones and um writers of the ark, a lost ark, they they understand that still it's very much within our cultural awareness today that touching the ark has consequences. And so we um we need to remember that this was God teaching a particular lesson and saying, you are not going to be disrespectful to me and I am not reliant on humanity. Now, the rabbis were kind to Uzzah in the end <coughs> and we're told that he was one of the, the eight people who was considered worthy to enter the world to come without any further purification. So, excuse me. So we we do have uh, the rabbis ascribing to him pure motives versus impure motives, and him merely being the the means by which God teaches a lesson, which I thought was very interesting.
1: Yeah, well, I was looking through here, uh, uh, trying to find it uh, where it is in Chronicles. I know you said it earlier, but I can never remember the numbers. Uh, uh, Thirteen, I believe. I was wanting to compare some stuff, but uh, go ahead with what you were saying. I'm sorry.
0: <laughs> so, uh David becomes angry at the Lord. Uh, Verse 8, it says, and David was angry at the Lord because he'd broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Now, excuse me, the allergies are killing me again. I'm not convinced angry is the best uh, translation here. The actual word for anger is not found in the Hebrew. I'm not convinced that angry is the best translation. The actual word for anger is not found in this verse. We have it in verse seven previously that God is angry at Uzzah, right? But here in verse eight, we just have va'yakar um, versus viakar off. Off is the Hebrew word for for um, anger. Okay. The way I remembered that in Hebrew class is off is angry, but it's also nostril. So out of anger, I not knocked your nose off so i mean the things you do to remember languages ticked off well it's the idea would be it's the (laughs) the nostril for me to remember right yeah the nostril flaring so we have verse seven and his anger was kindled or burned versus verse eight and he was kindled or burned And so the Talmudic argument is that without the word off, that this is more along the lines of dismayed or was distraught or was appalled. And so David's not angry of God. And I think where you have these back-to-back verses where you have the same idea, sorry, or the same um, kind of wording, similar wording, that if he'd meant the same thing, the writer would have said the same thing. Yeah, I mean, it makes sense to me.
1: I mean, yeah, it seems reasonable that you should write what you mean to say. <coughs>
0: well, the best of your ability. Right? And so I think there's some validity to the Talmudic softening of David's response. So I, I do find it interesting that the art scroll does add a parenthetical to this verse. Because okay. it tells us that David's dismay was not directed at God. It was directed at himself. And so for this reason, David's reaction is interesting because the Lord had broken um, broken out against Uzzah. Now, just a few... Um, Verses before in First Samuel five twenty, David had celebrate celebrated when God had broken out against the Philistines in battle. Right, and there was that place uh, Baal Perazim. Now we have Perez uh, Perez Uza. You hear the the Perez in there, mm. but that's broken out. So the two names actually have very similar, um, very similar names because they have that Perez in there that they're they've broken out. So. David goes from celebrating that God has broken out against the Philistines Mm -hmm. to lamenting and being appalled and dismayed that God's broken out against Uzzah. And we're reminded God doesn't play favorites. Right. If if you are not doing what he's told, even if you're part of the covenant community, God is still going to enact consequences against you. And I think Mm -hmm. that's one of the Mm -hmm. things we talked about a lot when we looked at our previous episode with 1 Samuel 4. So the the idea here is that the Israelites as God's chosen people and as people who had access to this kind of information they actually had a higher obligation and a higher responsibility to honor God than even the Philistines did mm-hmm. and we you know we as Christians need to take that into account for how we respond to God so verse 9 and David was afraid of the Lord that day and he said how can the ark of the Lord come to me Um not a lot of comments on David being afraid but as I read this you know the the, the golden child he, he's being reminded that God's only going to tolerate so much right. he he's being corrected but that was the point you remember Psalms 2 the, the son of God lives in that place of divine love and discipline. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Brighamman reads this as a positive. When uh, Here's what he has to say. He says, when people are no longer awed, respectful, or fearful of God's holiness, the community is put at risk. And Seems reasonable. I- isn't it? And notice the shift in David's perception and, and his attitude. And I was shocked that none of the commentators uh, pointed this out. How can the ark of the Lord come to me? In this question, the ark is the active element. Previously, David was asking if he should bring the ark to Jerusalem. Yet now he's saying, the ark needs to come to me. Mm-hmm. The ark needs to be the active component. So he's starting to get it. And the, he he's remembering... His obligation as a king to be subservient to God, and he's placing himself back in that proper position mm-hmm. of obedience, and he's keeping his his pride in check, and which is good because we all know what happens when David gets out of line, and you know, this is the the line that all of God's leadership has to to they, we have to tow. Mm-hmm. Uh, you gotta have confidence to move, sure, and, and to do the right thing, but you also yeah. have to <laughs> right. have
1: humility. Yeah.
0: It, Exactly. And so this is a time where David really has to find his confidence rooted in the commands of God. And and I think that's what this episode overall is about. It's, it's bringing David back to that place of humility so that when he acts on God's decree, it's not his own wisdom. It's not the wisdom of his generals. It, it's him saying, this is what God has dictated in his Torah, mm-hmm. These are the rules he's given us to exist by both as a people and a nation, and this also is very much in alignment with what we saw in Psalms 1 and 2. It's a big, cohesive piece of David's personality who where he understands his success mm-hmm. is rooted in following God's dictates, and he his life demonstrates this. His psalms proclaim this, and it's only when David gets too full of himself that we start seeing sin, we start seeing corruption, and we see him actually neglecting the people who should be under his care. So we'll uh, succumb to allergy problems (laughs) for this episode. Well,
1: yeah, it seems like a good place to stop, and uh, we'll take a little break and probably start cooking dinner but Yay! anyway food so anyway uh everyone thanks for joining us hopefully you had a good time and we'll be back next week with more of david more of uh still gotta finish Uza's story still gotta finish Uza's story um but yeah i mean we'll be excited to get into that and and see where it takes us but until next time catch us on ravencreeksc.com or ravencreeksc on the social media to be part of the conversation and we will see you next time bye
0: bye Their oddities podcast a raven creek social club production don't forget to follow us on facebook twitter and instagram if you like what you've heard please write us a review on itunes or consider supporting us on patreon.com slash raven creek sc as always thank you for listening and don't
1: forget to join us next week